Amen. Thank you, Rob. Praise the Lord that he's, uh, he's at work. He's at work um, across the country. He's at work all kinds of places. He's at work in people's hearts as individuals, and he's at work here. And we've seen um, the fruit and the evidence of that, and um, it's really awesome to be a part of it. So this is a great church. I'm really excited to be back with you all this morning and to uh, see what God has for us in Exodus chapter 12. Um, we are finally to the actual Exodus event in our passage this morning. So uh, we spent the last few weeks going through several stories um, in the first 10 chapters of Exodus. We started with um, Moses kind of getting a, a look into the backstory of his life at how God prepared him for leadership. Um, and uh, we saw Moses make a grave error several weeks back. Uh, he, he actually is a murderer. He uh, killed an Egyptian slaveholder in a, in a moment of passion and spent the next 40 years of his life living as an exile, running for his life uh, in the land of Midian. And, uh, and so we saw how God prepared him over that 80-year period, 40 years first in the palace living as a prince, and then the next 40 years living as an exile and a shepherd, uh, all in preparation for the last 40 years of his life where God would use him in tremendous ways. We looked at the burning bush moment um, where, where God comes down uh, to reveal himself to Moses and to commission him for this great task of liberating the Hebrew people. And um, there's so much depth of meaning and symbolism in that account. Um, we saw the, the bush that, that was on fire but was not being consumed. And we saw where uh, God told Moses to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And then we saw God give himself a name. Um, it was uh, the first place in scripture where we see God actually name himself. And he gives himself this kind of a strange name, I am that I am. And he told Moses, when people ask you who sent you, um, you tell them, I am sent you. We saw God work miracles through Moses in the presence of Pharaoh, turning his staff into a snake. Um, and, uh, and Pharaoh would stubbornly refuse to heed, even in the presence of clear, miraculous signs. And, um, and so last week, Marcus took us through the first nine of uh, ten plagues. We saw that God saw fit to make uh, Pharaoh release the Israelites under compulsion is the word that it uses. In other words, it's not going to be because he wants to, it's, it's going to be because I make him uh, with these miraculous signs. And so we went through uh, some of those ten plagues kind of rapidly. We didn't take a long time to dive deep into each one. There's all kinds of symbolism there. Uh, if you want to do a deeper study, um, you, can, you can go back and study some of the gods of the Egyptian pantheon, all of the false gods. They had hundreds, thousands of gods, more than you can even keep track of in the Egyptian society. And um, actually, each one of those plagues was kind of targeted at one of the false gods that they would worship. Um, and it was a way for the real God, almighty God, to come in and say, I am the sovereign one, and these, these gods are powerless. Um, so we, we talked about a whole bunch of stories, and we looked at how each of these stories is useful to us as a metaphor of what God has done for us in Christ. That's really the high-level unifying narrative here. We talked about how God is like a masterful artist, and he's painting beautiful pictures with incredibly intricate detail in the story of Exodus using real events of human history. 
especially here in Exodus. Um, and what we find is that God is simultaneously working for two purposes in the passage. First, he's working for, uh, in real events, in the real country of Egypt, to provide real deliverance to real Israelites living in real captivity. Um, and he is keeping very real promises to them. But at the same time, we find that he is writing for us this beautiful metaphorical story, which will ensure uh, that which he ensured is is recorded for us in Scripture, um, and we can uh, take it and read it and engage with it and better understand his plan for our redemption and for our deliverance. Um, and and that's an awesome thing. Only Almighty God can write stories and metaphors and paint pictures into the real events of human history. And if we're willing to view the book of Exodus as kind of this collection of pictures that God has painted for us, um, then I might humbly submit to you that the picture we'll look at this morning in Exodus, and 11, Exodus 11 and 12 is uh, perhaps the pinnacle of the entire collection. This is, if you will, the Mona Lisa. It's the starry night. This is the piece de resistance. This is the good one. Um, We've been growing in intensity as we work through these chapters in Exodus from Moses' initial commissioning, can't talk this morning, commissioning at the burning bush, and it's been progressively intensifying um, through the chapters into this all-out battle of wills between Pharaoh, who is the Egyptian ruler and a slave-holding tyrant, and between God himself speaking through Moses. And God has been unleashingly, unleashing successively one plague at a time onto Pharaoh and onto the Egyptians. Each one is worse than the last. Each one is more severe. Each one is targeted at another Egyptian god whom they would idolatrously worship in their pagan culture. The first plague we'll remember was um, God turned the entire Nile River to blood. I don't know if you know much about Egypt. You probably know, know enough to know that it's basically a big desert. Um, with one exception, there's this big giant Nile River that flows through it and basically that Nile River is the only thing that prevents the uh, land of Egypt from looking like all of the rest of the desert around it. It brings life to the whole area without the Nile. There is no life in Egypt and God takes that um, and, and of course the Egyptians would worship it. They had several gods related to the Nile because it was this life-giving thing for them and so God took it and he turned the entire river into blood, killed all the life in it all the alligators and frogs had to jump up out of it. All the fish died. He turns it into blood. The next one, um, after Pharaoh refuses to heed, such an incredible sign as that, was the plague of the frogs. The Egyptians had also deified frogs. Kind of funny. Um, it was illegal, actually, in ancient Egypt to kill a frog. It was a, an offense punishable by death. They did not play around with the frogs. Um, and part of that was they had frog gods. They had literal gods where the head of the, the, the statue or whatever idol they were worshiping was a frog. Um, and even if you accidentally killed it, you could still be put to death for killing a frog. And so God, in a, in a uh, I would say maybe a display of poetic justice and in a uh, self-righteous uh, display of his divine sovereignty and power, floods the land with frogs, right? Okay, you want to worship frogs? Now you're going to have a lot of them. You're going to have far more than you ever wanted. And so forth and so on. He goes through each one of these plagues. Next came the gnats. That was followed by a, a fourth a swarm of flies. And fifth was the death of the livestock. And after each one of these plagues, 
Moses would go to Pharaoh and he would tell him exactly what God was threatening to do. He said, you let my people go. Let us go and worship our God. Let us bring our cattle and our livestock and go and do as we please or God is going to do this to you. And each time Pharaoh would say, not going to happen. It's like, all right, well, you want it, you got it. You're going to suffer the consequences when you harden your heart and you refuse to yield to God's instructions. Next came the boils. That was number six, followed by the hail and then the locusts. And then the ninth one, uh, the last that we looked at, was the three days of complete darkness. And typically in these plagues, God would also make a clear distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. So, for example, in the plague of the livestock, um, God said, you're going to know that I make a distinction because all of the Egyptian cattle are going to die and none of the Hebrew cattle will, right? There's no natural explanation for something like that. When you see something like that, it's like, this is the hand of God at work. And yet, even though any sane person would be forced to conclude that God was judging the land of Egypt supernaturally, and, and even though the wise choice would clearly be to submit to his will before any further escalating judgments took place, God gave Pharaoh all these chances to humble himself, to submit to his will, and each time Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused. And that pattern of defiance continued from the first plague to the last, except for one detail. We read that for the latter of the ten plagues, the, the last five of the ten, um, we, we no longer read that Pharaoh had hardened his heart. We actually read that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we talked a little bit about that, uh, discussed it last week, how we can interpret that. <clears throat> but the high-level takeaway is that God had, of course, at this point, given Pharaoh enough chances, and he said, all right, um, if you want to rebel against me, um, I, I now see fit that I'm going to use you to display my power, and I'm not going to do it by compelling you to submission. I'm going to do it by, by compelling you by force. Our God has seen fit to reveal himself and to make himself known to us as his people. That's a wonderful thing. Praise him for that. Part of knowing God is learning to feel, fear him for his extraordinary power. Even Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Apart from the fear of God, there is no wisdom. Marcus gave a fantastic quote last week. I don't see him here this morning. He gave a fantastic quote, and I want to highlight it again. Um, I don't remember who he said said it. I didn't get his notes. Um, but I think it completely captures the, the key message from the ten plagues. He said, God has many opponents, but he has no rivals. Right? There are many fools throughout human history who have foolishly tried to challenge the Almighty God. Not one of them will succeed. You can be sure of that. God wants you to know that he stands completely alone in glory and in power. He is unmatched. He is unrivaled. With the breath of his mouth, he spoke life and all creation into existence. And with another breath, he can sovereignly speak it right back out. And if you don't believe that... I would invite you to read with me the account of the very last plague in Exodus chapter 11. We'll pick it up. Exodus 11, verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. 
The Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will get out. And he went out from Pharaoh's presence, fiercely angry. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. The Exodus story is a story primarily focused on God's deliverance of his people from bondage. That's, that's the high-level narrative. And we like to read those stories and glorify him for how he liberated Israel and how he'll liberate us who bear his name. But I would say we ought not immediately breeze past the reality that God's deliverance comes inseparably paired with a simultaneous outpouring of divine judgment here. God had now seen enough of Egypt's idolatry and its defiance and its arrogance. He had now given nine chances for Pharaoh and the land of Egypt to acknowledge his power and repent, but none of the nine were heeded, and his patience had now run out. So God would end this contest of the wills in dramatic fashion. He promised that he would go throughout Egypt and that death would visit every single home in the land. Every firstborn male would die from the palace of Pharaoh to the poor servant girl and even to the animals. And in keeping with God's perfect character, he did exactly as he promised. I think it's good for us, even as God's people, even as those who are spared from judgment, to reflect on God's judgment on occasion. We love to speak of mercy and we love to speak of grace and kindness and salvation. Um, And and that's wonderful. That's good. But every once in a while, I think it's also good for us to stop and exactly remember exactly what it is that we're being saved from. We are saved from a great final judgment toward which this whole world is careening right now. Already around us, we can see the passive judgment of God unfolding in various ways throughout our society and throughout the world. Natural disasters, great wars, geopolitical events, the judgment of God passively maybe just by withdrawing the grace of his presence, is already occurring in various degrees. But truthfully, there's coming a much greater judgment in the future, an outpouring of divine wrath which is yet to come. God has assured us of that in his word. And on the day that judgment comes, just as it was in Egypt 3,500 years ago, you can be sure there will be a great cry of anguish throughout all the land. 2 Peter 3 tells us that God is patient, he's long-suffering, he wants none to perish but all to come to repentance. But it also says in the same chapter that there will be a day when his patience with the world's rebellion will expire and it will give way to real judgment by fire. 2 Peter 3 actually says the elements themselves will melt in the heat. 
He has promised to do it, and you can be sure that his promises are true. How often do we approach God as if he is nothing more than our casual friend? How often do we forget exactly who it is that we show up to worship on Sunday mornings? How often do we trifle with God as if he is someone to be trifled with? I must implore you as my friends with all sincerity, even as I preach to myself, that we must not foolishly trifle with God. The time to repent of your idolatry and your disobedience and your pride and turn to him before the judgment ensues is now. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. You can be spared from the coming wrath. You need not suffer the tenth plague. Pharaoh and all the might of his Egyptian empire could not challenge God and win, and I would add, neither can you. Take care that you do not set your life up in opposition to God's divine purposes. It's not a good place to find yourself. So, in this final plague, death was to visit the land of Egypt, but with it, God was about to deliver his people once and for all from this tyranny and from this slavery. The real Exodus event for which the book was named was about to occur. And God, this great master artist, was painting for us a very detailed picture as he worked out the deliverance here in chapter 12. And as part of this picture he was painting, he has a lot of instructions for Moses and the people of Israel as they prepare to be liberated. We'll pick it up again in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it, roast it over the fire, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over the fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. A lot of instructions there. God starts his instructions by telling Moses and Aaron actually that they're to make a new calendar for the Hebrew people. And this event, this month, is to mark the beginning of their year. They structure the whole calendar around this event, sort of as the central event. Furthermore, they're to pass on to the whole community of Israel, which is, by the way, a community of 600,000 grown men, plus women and children, so presumably well over a million, uh, counting the women and the children. He's to pass on to them an extremely specific set of instructions, namely, on the 10th day of this new first month, 
They should take an unblemished year old male, either a sheep or a goat, and they're to segregate it from the other animals until the 14th day, whereupon they are to slaughter it at twilight. And notably, they're to take the animal's blood and paint the blood onto the doorposts of the home where they will have this Passover meal. Look at God's words um, in the next two verses. I'm looking at Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What an absolutely incredible metaphor of the gospel. That God has given his people a distinguishing mark. And that distinguishing mark is the blood of a lamb. It is the blood of the Passover lamb. The importance of that mark can scarcely be overstated. That blood on the doorposts was the distinguishing factor which would determine whether or not God's judgment of death would fall on that house or whether it would pass. No house without the blood was spared. No house with the blood was harmed. God also instructed them very clearly to have a meal during this Passover event. They were to roast the slaughtered animal over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then they were to dress for travel and eat the meal in a hurry with sandals on their feet and with a staff in their hand like they were ready for immediate departure. God goes further to say that this meal was to be a permanent annual tradition for his people. This was not a one-time event. They were going to do this as a holiday every single year. Let's read the rest of Exodus chapter 12. Bear with me, it's kind of long. I'll pick it up. Exodus 12, verse 14. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except preparing what the people need to eat. You may do only that. You are to observe this festival of unleavened bread because on this very day I brought your military divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a resident, alien, or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Do not eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread in all your homes. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of the house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. 
Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshiped. Then the Israelites went and did this, just as, they, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds of you, as you have asked and leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. And in this way, they plundered the Egyptians. Dramatic story. The culmination of a long saga reaches its conclusion. The Israelites are released Pharaoh releases them under compulsion, just as God has said. And we see the fulfillment of God's promises to Moses. Every last word of it was true. This was an event that was to be remembered for all generations of the Hebrew people. A remarkable event, not to be forgotten. Such that when the original eyewitness generation was gone, God's people would still have this dinner this holiday, this Passover meal, as a lasting reminder of what he had done for him. And he gave them the instructions, right? When your children ask you, what's the point of this? Why are we doing this Passover meal? What is this holiday about? It seems kind of weird. He tells them exactly what to say, right? He says you're to reply, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. We are, I would say, in the truest sense of the word, a forgetful people. We proclaim at one moment our full allegiance to God, and we turn around the very next moment, and we cease to trust Him. As soon as a moment of trouble hits, our natural inclination is to worry and to fret and to struggle in our own power, and we regularly fail to recall that our God that we serve is mighty, and He's sovereign, and He's able to deliver us from anything that we're up against. And so God, knowing what we are like in his wisdom, has set up specific times for his very forgetful people to stop what we're doing and to remember him. Later on in Exodus, he would give the Hebrews the Ten Commandments. And one of those Ten Commandments was to treat the Sabbath day, this one day per week of rest, as holy. Don't take it lightly. It's important. You need to stop what you're doing and pause and reflect and remember who I am. Likewise, in this passage, he was commissioning an annual holiday, a seven-day festival to the Lord, 
marked by a ceremonial meal at its culmination, and he tells the people why this holiday is so important. He says, I want you to remember what I have done here today. Mighty victories like that deserve to be remembered. And indeed, they were remembered. The people of Israel held this tra tradition for century after century after century after century. Generation upon generation looked back on this Exodus event as a marker of their national identity and as a token of the faith that they had in their God as a deliverer. And they praised him for it. I want to fast forward now as we come towards the end of our, of our discussion here. I want to fast forward now out of the book of Exodus. And I want to take you briefly to a new scene, a new story uh, about a new, much, much greater act of deliverance, even than this one. The scene we will enter now is Jesus. He's with his disciples, and it is the eve before his arrest and his crucifixion. And we find uh, Jesus and his disciples gathering together in an upper room to have a meal. It was a very particular meal. It was the Passover meal. We will pick up that account very briefly in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, I'll start in verse 14. This is Jesus. It says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. <clears throat> He's at the Passover meal. What a remarkable, presumptuous thing to say. This Passover was now a 1,500-year-old tradition. Do you know how ingrained a 1,500-year-old national tradition is? I mean, we think the fireworks on the 4th of July is like a big deal, right? Like, how could you not have fireworks on the 4th of July? It would be a scandal. That's a tradition that goes back to what, like 1977? That's like, it's like maybe 250 years. This is like six times that length, okay? 1,500 years is a long time. A tradition like that is not something that you just tinker with, right? You don't just go casually redefining it. What's more than that, this is not just any ordinary national tradition. This is a tradition that was given by instruction of God himself through Moses as his spokesperson. And God, through Moses, instructed the people of that day exactly what the interpretation of the Passover was, right? He said, your kids are going to ask you why you're doing this. And what you're to tell them is, we do this to remember the time that the Lord spared us from destruction and from death. We do this to remember that tenth plague in the land of Egypt from our ancestors when God passed over. 
And now all of a sudden, Jesus wants to change the meaning of a ceremony that's 1,500 years old, given by God through Moses all these years after it was instituted? Well, sort of. Actually, unbeknownst to the Old Testament Jews, Jesus' sacrificial death was the whole point of the Passover. From the very first one in Exodus 12 to the one in the upper room where Jesus held this last supper with his disciples. All along, God had intended that Passover tradition to be a picture of the true salvation, the deliverance that would be won at Calvary, which is far, far greater even than the deliverance of the people of Israel in Egypt. There at Calvary, Jesus would shed his blood on that cross as God's appointed Passover lamb, a perfect, unblemished sacrifice upon whom God's judgment would fall as a substitutionary atonement such that his people could be spared the judgment. And today, another two millennia later, even after the time of Jesus, he offers that blood to broken sinners like you and me. So Jesus take this, takes this Passover dinner. He fulfills it. He redefines it. And he reinstitutes it in a new way. From that moment on, even till now, God's people are no longer to celebrate this Passover dinner in remembrance of the final plague of Egypt. From that day forward, we're instead to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of a far, far greater act of deliverance. Jesus says, when you do this, you don't remember that tenth plague in Egypt. When you do this, you remember me. You remember my body, broken as this bread is. You remember my blood poured out like this wine. Strictly speaking, it was not sufficient for the people of Israel in the land of Egypt to slaughter a lamb when God came to judge the land of Egypt. The slaughtering of the lamb was not the whole instruction. In order for God's judgment to pass over them, they had to take that lamb's blood and apply it to the doorposts of the home. My friends, Jesus' death as the Passover lamb, his broken body and his shed blood on that Roman cross is of no use to you if it has not been applied. We are invited by God's Holy Spirit to take that blood and to apply it to the doorposts of our hearts, to be cleansed by it and thereby to be spared from the coming judgment. Repentance and faith are the means by which you take that blood and you apply it in a saving manner. I hope and pray that each of you here this morning can point to the doorposts on which that blood has been applied. Show the mark there, the distinguishing mark, and point to it and know that the destroyer will not come for you. Praise the Lord that we can have confidence this morning that our God is mighty to save. He truly is. He has provided this Passover lamb for our deliverance. He has won the battle, and it is ours to join him in that victory and to celebrate it. I will leave you with some wonderful truths from the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May we live out these words together, collectively. As a people of faith, may we live them out individually. May we not trifle with God. May we take him seriously. And may we take care to follow his instructions to apply that Passover lamb's blood to our doorposts. May we celebrate our redemption with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for these incredible pictures. We are so grateful that before the foundation of the world, you had a plan for all of this. You knew that we would need redemption and you provided in an extraordinary fashion, Lord. May we honor the reading of your word. May we honor it with our obedience, Lord. May we apply it to our hearts. May we live in accordance with its precepts. We're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for that Passover lamb and what he has done for us and for your deliverance, Lord. Be with us now and as we discuss, as we uh, think about takeaways, as we, as we respond, Lord, and we pray also that you would be with Wes in the sermon that's to follow. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen.